Hello, welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 195. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. As I was saying that introductory stuff that I say, the back of my mind was concerning, well, what do I say after that? And I got nothing. So, how are you, folks? What's new with you? Oh, well, that's cool. Oh, well, that's not so cool. Um, well, you could always post Bond, I guess. Good behavior could be out in six to eight months. What? Oh, really? Well, yeah, best of luck with that. And, oh, yeah, that does appear to be festering. So maybe you want to take care of that before you go out you know, in public. Dude's not going anywhere anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been fun. Why don't we go on uh, to the next thing? Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship, or else he'll go splat. He's Mad Mike Hughes. Mad Mike Hughes. I'm not sure I've ever looked at the Mad Mike Hughes Wikipedia page, but I'm doing it now. The subject heading for the page is Mad, or is not actually Mad Mike Hughes. It is Mike Hughes, parentheses, Daredevil, close parentheses. I'm assuming somewhere in this bio, I'm not going to find that he played the, you know, superhero character Daredevil. But, you know, who knows? The very first entry on the Wikipedia page is Mad Mike Hughes is an American limo driver, Daredevil, and flat earth conspiracy theorist known for flying in self-built rockets. Hughes lives in California, where he makes U.S. $15 per hour plus tips as a limousine driver. Guinness World Record in 2002 with a 103-foot jump in a Lincoln Town Car stretch limo. Hughes built a first manned rocket on January 30th, 2014 and flew 1,374 feet in just over one minute over Winkleman, Arizona. According to the CBC, Hughes collapsed after the landing and took him three days to recover. Hughes stated that the injury suffered from the flight put him in a walker for two weeks. 2016, failed fundraising attempt for a rocket that earned $310. After professing his belief in a flat earth later that year, he gained support within the flat earth community and met his fundraising campaign goal of $7,875. Intends to make multiple rocket journeys. Had a schedule originally, had a launch originally scheduled for November 2017, rescheduled for December 2017, but then there were more disputes regarding permits and whatnot. Had a successful launch finally on March 24, 2018, getting up 1,875 feet and a hard landing in the Mojave Desert. Hughes planned again to launch himself on August 10, 2019, but mechanical troubles postponed the launch. The following weekend, the launch was again postponed, and Hughes was treated for uh, heat exhaustion. And that was the launch that was sponsored, as we've talked about, by the casual dating app HUD. Among the criticism, Ian Whitaker of Nottingham Trent University has uh, has commented that the Earth is to send up a camera in a high-altitude balloon. Hughes appears in the music video for the Death Valley Girls song, One Less Thing, Before I Die, by Kansas Bowling, and features footage of his rocket launch in Apple Valley. There you go. I realized I had never really looked at the Wikipedia page, so, you know, you're welcome. Four days ago on Twitter, Rocket Man the Movie entry, the self-taught rocket scientist standing next to the homemade rocket. Would you launch yourself in the rocket? Oh, very well, I'll follow the link. Yep, there he is, next to a big red... Rocket that says, Research Flat Earth on the side. Then they do a plug for the movie. 
October 2nd, I don't know if I mentioned this one last week or not, daybreak, when you're launching a rocket to prove the Earth is flat, you have to get up early, preferably before the cops come. Yeah, I remember that picture. I think I did talk about that last week. So, apparently nothing new going on there. Well, wait, let's check out the fundraising. The Mad Mike Hughes Space Launch GoFundMe hasn't changed. It's still $160, but it looks like the Flat Earth Community Rocket Launch has gone up. As you know, they've already reached their goal, which was 7875 but now they've gone up, 8071 No doubt thanks to the publicity they're getting on this show. Um, that is definitely up from last week. 123 donors, 802 shares, 135 followers. Mad Mike Hughes would like to put Research Flat Earth on the prime spot of his 17-foot rocket on both sides. He also wants to put Research Flat Earth on both sides of his mobile rocket launcher, as well as a 4x4-inch area on his flight suit. Mike will be launching his rocket a mile into the air with him inside and is looking for $7,500 for sponsorship. The AP will do, be doing a story on his rocket launch a week prior to his launch that will be distributed across fl the flat earth. That's subtle. Mad Mike's propulsion system will launch him a mile up. His rocket will then be placed into a museum with research flat earth plastered on the side. What museum is taking this? We want to help make this happen, so we're going to try and crowdsource his next rocket launch and raise the 7500 Knowing that NASA doesn't send anyone to space, Mad Mike could be one of the only people up in the air on a rocket. This is important. We get behind him. Brought to you by the Flat Earth Associated Press. Oh. So it's not the AP. It's the Flat Earth Associated Press. And Mad Mike Hughes and the entire Flat Earth community. So nothing in here about when this launch is supposed to happen. Somebody actually gave 100 bucks. I won't say his name. He's got to be embarrassed by now. Most of these are 5 and $10 donations. Hold on. The Infinite Plane Society gave 2000 bucks. Hmm. Alright, so that's all there is to know in Mad Mike Hughes' world. Watch out for dragons. Gonna prove that the world is flat In his rocket ship Or else he'll go splat He's Mad Mike Hughes Mad Mike Hughes Let's see. On September 29th, I posted about Hunt and Score. I received praise on Facebook from Sean Courtney for pronouncing Burt Breathed correctly. He also helped me out because I couldn't remember the name Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, as far as I know, those two guys don't know each other. But if you listen to the show, you realize that I mentioned both of them. Burt Breathed, I could remember and actually pronounce. Tommy Lee Jones, uh, much simpler th name to pronounce, but I could not remember it. So he helped me out. For context, listen to the show. On October 6th, I posted about episode 193, Auto Racing. If you remember, in the episode, I was quite confused. Most of the time, I'm quite confused. But specifically on that episode, I was confused because I could find no internet stuff about auto racing. And I said, what is this mysterious thing I have before me? Is it a mirage? Is it an illusion? Did I take an extra dose of my medication today by mistake? What What is happening here? Uh, Ferg... I should have known. Ferd would know. I probably should have just emailed him ahead of time and said, what's up with this? But after the fact, he helped me out. He wrote, Sears only put the game variations on the face label and the name of the game on the end label for their early games. So, Auto Racing is Race, or Indy 500, for which you need a special controller to play. I only take solace in the fact that apparently Sean Courtney didn't know that either. Ha! There's something you didn't know, Sean. Because he posted prior to that that... Um, Unless the search function isn't working properly, this game doesn't even have an entry in Atari Age's 2600 Rarity Guide. But Ferg's explanation explains that. It's just Indy 500, apparently, with the Sears label on it. I'm curious about this now. I actually have, in my stacks of games, Indy 500. I've 
played it. I picked it up somewhere, I think in a lot of games or something. And I suppose when I get to it, I will discover, hey, I've played this before. I'm also sort of it because if you remember, a spoiler from Auto Racing, I was not impressed with the game. So we'll see. But I do appreciate Ferd helping me out. Thanks, Ferd. Oh, and I should have put in the Mad MyTews update that Jeff Fullerton, 8-Bit Rocket, on Twitter, reached out to tell me that, poor bastard, he apparently has actually watched a man movie. Again, not the Elton John biopic. Maybe he's watched that too. I don't know. But Hughes's movie, Rocket Man. This is Rocket Man, or whatever the hell it's called. Let's see if I can find his sort of Twitter size review. Well, Twitter is not cooperating with me, with me at the moment. But basically, what he said was that he'd watched it. He had to stop about an hour into it to take a break. There was a lot of conspiracy crap in it. In my notes, it says conspiracy crap. I don't know if that's exactly how Jeff put it. But that was essentially the sentiment that he needed to take a break from the conspiracy stuff. And then he, he noted that further into the movie you get, it just kind of gets weirder. And as he put it, more sad. Um, I kind of want to watch it now. I think it is a, uh, I think it is actually on Amazon Prime for free if you have Prime. So I guess it would not cost me any extra money to watch it. It would just cost me an hour, whatever, of my time. Plus, you know, a tiny little smidge of my soul. So, we'll see. I may do it. And if I do, it's all because of you, Jeff Fulton. We'll see. I have many other things going on right now. I'm putting out a podcast, if you didn't know, uh, as well as a second podcast, uh, as well as writing a story for this here podcast. And also, I have somehow gotten volunteered to write a play. Uh, it is now the middle of October. I have to have a play written by the end of October, which I really haven't even started writing yet. So, uh, we'll see what happens with watching the Mad Mike movie. Um, I read an article recently, a lot of us listening are probably Gen Xers, and I read an article recently commenting on how Gen X is sort of a, a lost generation, in a sense. You had the boomers doing their thing, and you have m the millennials are sort of the, the hot generation now, and the Xers are just kind of sitting back, not really, not necessarily not accomplishing anything, but not necessarily accomplishing what they expected to accomplish. They're just kind of hanging out collecting their paychecks, doing their thing, while, you know, the boomers uh, suck up everything, and the millennials get all the attention, and Gen X is just sort of not a failed generation, but n not quite living up to what it expected it would do. I think the, the takeaway from the article, at least that writer's perspective, was that Gen X has just kind of sleepwalked through its, its life as a whole. So the article I read was in Descent Magazine, the opening section says, To be Gen X was to be disaffected from the consumer norms of the 1980s, but to be pessimistic about any chance of social tr for tr social transformation. One of the most interesting th things about this article is it includes a photo of Beto O'Rourke on the cover of his band Foss's 1993 EP, The El Paso Pussycats. Beto, or Beto, is looking very... Who can I compare him to in this photo? He's got a little bit of a Kurt Cobain thing going. Maybe a young Matthew McConaughey. Not, not that McConaughey's old, but, you know, when McConaughey first came on the scene version of Matthew McConaughey. Something like that. Also, I didn't know he was in a band. So, there you go. This writer says there are articles out there urging us, the Gen Xers, to reclaim irony and gloom as features of cultural resilience. There are the cheerleaders who operate in a decidedly non-Gen X mode. Time's up, baby boomers, as Gen X has turned now. 
but it's hard to argue that members of Generation X are taking the reins. Gen X is overshadowed by demographics on either side. In the presidential race, for example, Beto O'Rourke, a former indie rocker, is trailed by every imaginable measure, eclipsed by septuagenarians, Biden, Warren, and Sanders, on one side, and millennial, Buttigieg, uh, on the other. The various Gen X candidates who weren't playing punk rock in the 90s, Harris, Butcher, Castro, aren't doing so great either. To be Gen X was ironic, skeptical, deflating of pretension and authority detached from social movements and political parties alike. Implicit within this pose were the seeds of a quiet radicalism, a distance from the world as it is that could, under the right conditions, blossom into an open challenge, as in the World Trade Organization's protests in Seattle in 1999. But more often, the stance was interpreted as uh, anime, a withdrawal from political life. Basically, Generation X had to follow the organizations of the 60s, which romanticized youth as the vanguard of social revolution. But one might say Generation X was taking the political reality of defeat and redefining it as cultural position. Then there's a nice uh, analysis of uh, what life was actually like in the 90s. And a conclusion that it's time finally to put to rest this category forged in political loss. Generation X, may you slip peacefully into oblivion playing air guitar all the way. The author uh, notes that she herself is squarely in the middle of Generation X. As one of us, I guess. If you have you guys have thoughts about air guitar, let me know. Uh, if you remember, a vinyl edition of the Emma Daughter soundtrack made waves third store day last year. And apparently now it's back again for record store. The new version will feature a photo disc with two memorable scenes from the movie printed onto the disc, one on each side. Record Store Day happens on November 29th, and you can find a list of participating stores at Record Store Day, the, the Record Store Day website. The record will be limited to just 3,000 copies. I did not pick this up last year, um, particularly since I don't have a functioning turntable at this point. I am kind of tempted to pick it up. I don't even own it on CD. I'm not sure you can get it on CD honestly, but I am kind of intrigued with the idea of, there are certain soundtracks that just seem like a good idea for vinyl, and this is one of them, so who knows, I might pick it up, and then I'll have to buy, buy something to play it on. It's a never-ending money pit, I tell you, by which I mean life. Alright, let's move on to this week's game. This week's game is, hold on to something, a club perhaps, we're playing Miniature Golf from Atari, 1978. Woo-woo. I'll tell you, this month we've had some amazing games, haven't we? We're off the chain, yo. We had Hunting Score. We have this one. We had some other one I can't remember. Well, we had Journey Escape in there. But didn't we have some other sort of basic uh, Atari title in there too? I don't know. But we've had some amazing games. And this one is no exception. Sure, let's go with that. It's called Miniature Golf. I'm going to go ahead and look at the manual for you, although I don't really know why. It's pretty self-explanatory. Using the joystick for this, make sure it's plugged in. Your sense of timing and your perceptiveness in judging distance are about to be fine-tuned. This exciting video game, it's not even in quotes, simulates an actual miniature golf course complete with moving obstacles. The best part of this is Atari said, we're going to make a golf game. And everybody was probably like, yeah, okay, that's cool. And we have lots of trees, and we set up different holes, like par one and par two, and could put dog legs in the course and stuff. And Atari was like, no, 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 no. We don't want to get crazy. We're just going to make a miniature golf game. To which there was a, probably a collective round of, oh, all right. So they did. Simulates an actual miniature golf course complete with moving obstacles. And here's a, a photo of a sample hole. Can you see in the back? Yeah? All right. 
up in the left corner, you got the number of the hole. On the right, you've got par for the hole, meaning the, the score you can be expected to get on that hole. And then you've got the hole. You've got the moving obstacle. Um, the only obstacle you really ever get is this one little rectangle that kind of moves back and forth in your way. And if your ball hits that, it kind of bounces it off in some other direction. That That's the, really the only obstacle. Other than, yeah, I mean, I guess you can hit the, the walls that line the screen, and it can make your ball bounce. But I noticed it really didn't do much if you hit, I mean, there, there are things to go around throughout the, uh, in the middle of the, the course, but it didn't really seem to affect much. Just the, the walls around the course, and then this obstacle thing. Then we have a whole page of the manual that's just different layouts for the different holes. So I guess that you can, I guess you can memorize them before you go over to your buddy's house after school to play miniature golf and you can be like hey uh i've heard of this miniature golf thing i don't know if it's any good or not do you want to give it a try and of course you've memorized all the holes so you get on there and you beat johnny's ass at this game and then he goes and cries to his mommy and your mommy gets a phone call and then you get banned from johnny's house and that sucks because he always has twinkies and his mom will let you have two twinkies because she's the cool mom in the neighborhood and your mom's like Twinkies are just sugar and fat. You don't need to eat those. Here, have some lima beans. And you hate lima beans because lima beans are gross. And then your dad comes home and he's like, I work all day so that you could eat lima beans. I could put lima beans on the table with the hard-earned money that I earned and you didn't eat them because you're an ungrateful slob. And then you run away from home and you know quit high school and go to work at the, the 7-Eleven where... You learn to get really good at making Slurpees or whatever the hell they say at 7-Eleven. But you always thought you'd go to art school because you memorized things like out for miniature golf and you have lots of designs in your head. But now you can't because you don't have your high school diploma and life is pretty much over. All because of miniature golf. Thanks, Atari. What was I talking about? Okay, so there are nine holes in which to hit the ball into the... Each time you hit the ball, it is called a stroke. Although the number of strokes you take to hit the ball into the cup is unlimited, par represents the number of strokes you are ideally supposed to take to complete the hole. Select game. You push the select. You push the game select switch. For a one or two player game, a one will appear in the upper left corner of the screen. For a one player game, a two will appear in a two player game. To begin the game, to press the game reset switch because that's how switches work. Use your joystick to uh, position the club. Press the red button on the joystick to release the club and hit the ball. The club actually covers the ball at the beginning of each hole. Your first step, therefore, is to move the club into a hitting position away from the ball. The farther away you move the club, the longer the ball rolls or travels when hit. To help you position the club more accurately, it moves at a slower speed when traveling at a closer distance to the ball. Push the joystick forward to move the club up toward the top of the TV screen. Put the joystick back, pull the joystick back, or toward you to move the club down or toward the bottom of the screen. Push the joystick to the left to move the club to the left. Push the joystick to the right to move the club to the right. After being struck, the ball travels along the same line of trajectory already established by the club. And they have a helpful diagram of that too. Remember, however, that the ball must travel around all boundaries. In a one-player game, you only have one player, of course, at the beginning of the first stroke. The number for that hole is displayed in the upper left corner of the screen. The par for that hole is shown in the upper right. After the first stroke, the player's running score replaces A zero replaces the par until the beginning of the next hole. Game two is for two players. 
The left player goes first. After the first stroke by each player, the respective scores are displayed at the top of the screen until the whole These score totals replace the whole number in the par, as in game one. Fall into the cup to complete the hole, before the game progresses to the next hole or the next player's turn. Each time you hit the ball, the computer records one stroke against you. Your running score is displayed at the top of the screen. Ideally, your goal is to match or beat the par for each hole. The lower your score, the better. The score for the left player is displayed on the top left. The score for the right player is displayed in, on the top right. Longer distance when the difficulty switch is in the A position. Use the left difficulty switch for one player games. And that is how you play miniature golf. I don't know if I mentioned the field report, although you could probably tell from listening to the field report. Not a whole lot of sound in this game. An occasional little ding, but that's about it. Time to think of it, I guess actual golf is like that too. Except for the streaming children. And the sound of grandpa whacking grandma with the golf club because she messed up his shot. And then the sound of grandma shoving that golf club somewhere where it shouldn't be. Because family outings. Atari Protos notes that Tom Ryderdahl programmed this game and that Atari stopped distributing the game in 1979. Ah, miniature golf. The bastard spawn of golf and good. Now realizing that I have said bastard twice in this episode, which is about two more times than I usually say it, and my sentence just now, I guess, was the third time, um, I might have to slap a language warning on this episode. Hmm, we'll see. Well, it may not exactly, according to the review, may not exactly have been America's favorite pastime. Mini golf was widely popular back in the in the 70s. Unfortunately, 2600 programming was still in its infancy when miniature golf was coded, so everything has a blocky square look to it right down to the square ball. Miniature golf never quite lives up to its full potential. The game is hampered by blocky graphics, limited sound, and some control problems. One of the biggest problems comes when you try to back up your club when you're near a wall. Since you can't move the club off screen, you're forced to either take small putts or choose a less desirable angle. When I was playing it the last time, I think it's in the field report, but I didn't, I don't know if I commented on it. I was, the ball was right up next to the left side wall, and I needed it to go to the right. And I couldn't get the club position so that I could hit the ball in a way that would get it off the wall. And it was very frustrating. I think it's at that point I said, you know what, field report's over. Atari sto- decided to stop selling miniature golf in 1979 for unknown reasons, and also stopped selling another early game, Starship, around this time as well. Well, if anyone knows any of the history of why these games, they, they just made a decision to stop selling them, let me know. Defunctgames.com says that as with the first golf game I covered in this special, he's doing a, a special survey of different games on different consoles, golf on the Atari 2600 Miniature Golf only tries to provide a basic experience for those that, for unknown reasons, for whatever reasons, can't go out to do the real thing. Don't expect to file, find wild courses or power-ups. In fact, don't don't go looking for much of anything. Miniature Golf basically ignores two years worth of game development since Pong is just squares, squares everywhere. You know, not to differ, but they're really more rectangles. The basic look may have been forgivable if it meant there were plenty of games on the cartridge like with Combat, but that's not the case. There are only nine holes, and that's it. You would have seen everything in barely ten minutes. The gameplay is also problematic. Over my time writing for Defunct Gamers uh, Games, I've established that I'm very forgiving when it comes to the age and simplicity of Atari 2600 games. Miniature Golf severely tested that. It's not that it's a basic sports game. It's not that it's almost 40 years old. Those are same things applied to golf on the 2600. However, golf still came across like a finished game for the time. 
Miniature golf looks and plays like a prototype that no one bothered to finish before shoving it out the door. It's not the worst golf game I've ever seen, but it's definitely not worth teeing up. All right, well, grab your putter and get ready, because after the break, we're going to play a few rounds. Four... Hi, golf. Listen, can we speak, you know, golf to golf, mano a mano? I need to tell you something. I understand that your golf may be miniature. I hear you. I feel you. You feel inadequate about the size of your golf. But trust me, whether your golf is miniature or not, the size of your golf doesn't matter. What matters? It's just that you hit the hole. Be strong, miniature golf. All right, we're playing miniature golf. So let's do that. Okay, very basic setup, very 70s looking. A lot of squares and rectangles. Green field, which you would expect. The obstacle is just a pinkish triangle, or triangle. Mino shapes good. A pinkish rectangle sort of moving back and forth. This is hole number one. And uh, I'm, I'm about to uh, about to hit it. So let's hit it. Wow, that was an underwhelming hit. Your golf club is just a blue square. Eh, more of a rectangle, I guess. Wow, I hit and bounced off the side wall and it bounced back, the ball bounced back pretty much to where I started. The ball is a square, which could add to the difficulty level of the game, I would think. And I did it again. Bounced back even farther back from where I was. I suck at miniature golf. I'm on 12 strokes already? Alright, now to get to the hole, I got the obstacle in my way. Boom! Yeah, that's how you do that suck it obstacle. I am almost there. One more stroke. Boom. Oops, I wasn't lined up correctly. Two more strokes. Uh, three more strokes. All right, four more strokes. Wait, make that five more. Six, six more strokes. Yes. We won't talk about what my score on that hole was. If I were playing in a natural miniature golf course, I would owe everybody a snow cone. Where's the hole? Oh, there it is. So. If it's 1970 whatever, I'm probably pretty excited with this game. Uh, it looks nothing like a golf course. If the label was missing from this game, I wouldn't know what this was. But, knowing that it's supposed to be golf and it's 1970 whatever, I think I would have been pretty happy with it. Especially since I would have been like 6 or 7 or whatever. I would have sat and played this game forever. So, from that standpoint, I got no real complaints. By the standard of modern computer golf games, of course, it's not so much. But that's not the appropriate standard, is it? Boom! That was a nice shot. Did you guys see that? I am awesome! I'm pretty sure Tiger Woods started this way. 
Alright, well, I think you get the idea, specifically, that I'm awesome at miniature golf. So, uh, I'll be waiting for the uh, snow cones you're going to send me in the mail. Back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail, because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hey, it's me, Bill, your host, the guy you've been listening to this whole episode. Do you enjoy the stories I write and read to you every week on this podcast, but you feel like you just need a break from my voice? I get it. My family does sometimes, too. Here's an option. Some of the stories from the show are now collected in a volume titled Misery Banana, Very Short Stories Inspired by Old Games and Odd Thoughts. You can order it wherever you like to order books. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks. So here's the thing about miniature golf. Like everyone, I've been on miniature golf courses before, but when I think of miniature golf, what I really think of is being a kid in the 1970s and going to stay for a weekend or whatever at the Holiday Inn. I don't mean like the Holiday Inn Express that you go to now. I mean like the legit, original, multicolored Holiday Inn sign out front. The hotel experience. If you were a kid traveling with your family on a road trip, you stayed at the Holiday Inn. Gosh darn it, that's where you went. Um, they had fancy ashtrays in the rooms. Again, this was Holiday Inn in the 1970s. They had a, a paper thing wrapped around the toilet seat so that you knew the toilet was clean, I guess. They had pinball machines, and they had ice machines, and they had a swimming pool, and they had a miniature, miniature golf course. They'd have a putting green, basically, with two or three holes and clubs so that kids already jacked up on sugar from the vending machine next to the ice machine and wound up from swimming in the pool could then, you know, splatter water all over the place and hit each other with golf clubs on these on this putting green. And there were no windmills and obstacles and clown faces and stuff. It was just a putting green. That's the version of miniature golf that I think of when I think of miniature golf, which admittedly is not a thing I do often. I didn't get that experience from this game. The game is fine. I think I agree with the reviews that even by 1978 standards, it's pretty basic. Um, But I also think of what me in 1978 would have thought, and I would have been very happy to play this game because it was a video game, which was still a pretty new concept. So trying to look at it from, from those eyes, through those eyes, I would have been happy with it. Maybe not for a long time. I probably would have switched over to uh, Space Invaders or something. But I, I wouldn't have hated it either. So maybe that's all you can ask. Atari. We make games people don't hate. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story 
Time with Bill. This week's story is titled Miniature Death. Patty was just 12 years old. The only life she'd ever known was fear. Crouched now in the dark with her little brother and her parents, waiting for the next one to hit, she wondered how much longer that life would last. Hush now, Patty's mother, Juno, whispered. This round should be over soon. The bit of sunlight coming through the window high atop the windmill glinted off the clip in Juno's green-streaked hair. She straightened the bun atop Patty's curly lavender hair, and Patty wriggled, annoyed by the fussing. Patty's little brother Maddox groaned. Quiet, Maddox, you'll kill us all, she said, a bit more of a tremor in her voice than she would have liked. Her father, Colin, wore the same worried expression he always wore. He looked upward, head slightly cocked, as the blades of the old windmill creaked and groaned. How many times had the family huddled here in the dark? How many more times could they survive? He combed nervously at his beard with thin, well-worn, well-worked fingers. Wham! The windmill shook as the projectile slammed into one of the blades. The turbine kept on spinning, though. They were all right, the four of them, this time. Patty's family had maintained the windmill for generations. It was a solitary existence. The windmill caretakers occasionally interacted with the knights in the castle over the hill, or the elves in the Candyland castle to the south, but not much. Each of them had their part to play, defending their own patch of the green expanse, and they would do so, no matter how taxing. The family held its collective breath as a chartreuse-colored sphere filled the opening in one of the lower windows, rattled there a bit, but thankfully did not enter. The angry shouts of the men outside were deafening. Patty hated them, those men, and the others who lumbered through Patty's homeland all the days of her life without a care for its beauty. They sought only victory at any cost. Made it stop! Made it stop! Maddox shouted. Patty held him a bit closer. Her little brother had never known a world without the giant beasts and their metal death rods. But she, Patty, remembered a period when the snow came and the men went away. Two more spheres slammed the side of the windmill. I fear this might be the end, Colin said, though to be fair, Colin worried about everything. Their mother started to object when an orange globe struck the blades, rode one down, and threw an opening in the roof of the windmill. The whole family screamed, Remember me! Colin shouted and leapt upon the devil's own turd. The two rolled down a ramp into a hole and out of the windmill, where they were scooped up by one of those monsters, the beast laughing and joking the whole time. No! Patty screamed, but she knew it was pointless. The life of a windmill caretaker is short and brutal. It comes with the job. Through tears, Juno attempted to rally her remaining family. Now, children, we must honor your father. We will continue in our duties to the windmill as we must, as we always have. Patty nodded silently, though she didn't necessarily agree. No, mother, she thought. Not as we always have. Things are different now. I will avenge the metal rod people. They will pay for what they have done. They will no longer march across our grasslands with impunity. Tread lightly, beasts. I am coming for you. Patty stood on wobbly knees. She willed to lock. And then, as she had heard the monsters outside say so many times before, she bellowed out a chilling war cry. Four! Outside, Rachel handed her putter to Ron. Did you hear something? she asked. Ron sank his golf ball into a clown's mouth. Nope, he said. Put me down for a four, he said, counting on his fingers. He took a huge lick of cherry snow cone. Rachel shrugged. Hey, after this, you want to hit the arcade?
that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Mike Mann for the Mad Mike Hughes update theme. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, but make sure you tee one up at Apple Podcasts and sync that putt that is a review of this show that will make the crowd cheer in whispers. Yay! So as not to disturb the other golfers. I mean, listeners. I kind of got lost in my metaphor there. If I said, leave a review of five stars on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find the show, that's really what I meant to say. Metaphors are hard. Email the show at AtariBytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at AtariBytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, look us up on Instagram. And don't forget, you can also call and leave us a voicemail at 563-265-1978. I won't talk to you. Seriously, all you gotta do is leave a message about any damn thing you want. And there's a good chance I'll play it on the show. Check out my new website, which isn't so new now, I guess, but it is a website www.carnivalofgleecreations.com You can find out information, links to social media, and episodes for this podcast, Atari Bytes, and for my other podcast, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, which is where I talk about, once a month, all things related to the Peanuts comic strip, and the TV specials, and the films, and the merchandise, and the mind of Charles Schultz, and related projects. Actors, playwrights, authors, they've all come on the show to fill in the gaps huge gaps in the knowledge that I don't have and it's extremely entertaining if you've ever been a fan of Snoopy and you know you have. Information about all that is on the website. You can also find out about books that I've written. Specifically, Misery Banana, very short stories inspired by old games and odd thoughts which is a collection of short stories that have appeared on this very podcast which you can take home for your very own self in book form. Also, it's getting to be the holiday season. You might consider checking out my novel, In the Saint Nick of Time, which is sort of a Santa Claus story for adults. So go check that out. Make sure if you like either of those books that you leave a review of the books wherever you bought them or and and or over on Goodreads. Thank you very much. Please also consider supporting the show financially by making a, a donation, becoming a subscriber on the Atari Bytes Patreon page. You can get access to bonus episodes, you can get access to episodes early, um, all sorts of perks to being a, a donor, aside from just being a nice person and helping to keep the lights on here at the podcast, you can get all that other stuff. Thanks to my patrons, Michael Tyler and Jose Cazeta, you guys are awesome. Next time on Atari Bytes, it's Halloween, almost, so we're going to play Revenge of the Beefsteak Tomatoes. There's a BLT in my fridge cowering in fear right now. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.